This morning's reading is on page 599, 599. It's Psalm 90. Psalm 90, a prayer of Moses, the man of God. Lord, you have been our dwelling place throughout all generations. Before the mountains were born, or you brought forth the earth and the world, from everlasting to everlasting, you are God. You turn men back to dust, saying, Return to dust, O sons of men. For a thousand years in your sight are like the day that has just gone by, or like the watch in the night. You sweep men away in the sleep of death. They are like the new grass of the morning, though in the morning it springs up new, by evening it is dry and withered. We are consumed by your anger and terrified by your indignation. You have set our inequities before you, our secret sins in the light of your presence. All our days pass away under your wrath. We finish our years with a moan, the length of our days is 70 years, or 80 if we have the strength. Yet their span is but trouble and sorrow, for they quickly pass and we fly away. Who knows the power of your anger? For your wrath is as great as the fear that is due to you. Teach us to number our days all right, that we may gain a heart of wisdom. Relent, O Lord, how long will it be? Have compassion on your servants. Satisfy us in the morning with your unfailing love, that we may sing for joy and be glad all of our days. Make us glad for as many days as you have afflicted us, for as many years as we have seen trouble. May your deeds be shown to your servants, your splendour to their children. May the favour of the Lord our God rest upon us. Establish the work of our hands for us. Yes, establish the work of our hands. This is the word of the Lord. Let's pray. <clears throat> Heavenly Father, we pray that as we uh, come to look at this, uh, what for many of us will be a difficult subject of dying and the art of dying well, we join with the prayer of Moses in that psalm that we've just read, and we ask that you would teach us to number our days aright, that we may gain a heart of wisdom, and we ask it in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, um, I wasn't quite expecting to have, have to announce uh, my talk like this, but sadly, we have an example of a death this week, so Colin Rolfe sadly died this past week. Those of us who know him will be sad. Um, of that and want to think and pray for Isabel. I remember Colin as being, particularly when we were building this uh, building and doing bits of uh, the changing the old church, that a lot of Colin's architectural skills were sort of greatly used. So that's just uh, something to give thanks for, to thank for him, for his life, and to pray for his family. But I guess uh, most of us are used to sort of filling in forms or applications at some time uh, in our lives and uh, we're used to sort of writing sort of things, we're used to having to write down our date of birth or 
um, perhaps when we started school or college or work. Um, if we're married, we, we're used to sort of filling in the date we got married, and if we've got children, we may be used to writing down, you know, their dates of birth. But how would we fare if we were asked to fill in the date of our death? Well, of course, we can't do that. Actuaries who work out insurance risk, they use all sorts of details like our medical history, our lifestyle, <coughs> and so on to predict our, lifely, our likely lifespan. And we can look at the average lifespan for, say, a person in England and sort of get a sort of idea of how long we might be living. Um, but one thing we can be certain of is that unless the Lord Jesus returns, then we're all going to die. We all face this death sentence. <coughs> but for most of us, we've actually absolutely no idea when it will be. We're going to take a break. We're taking a break this week from our um, series in the later chapters of Mark's Gospel that we've been looking at to have one of our occasional talks looking at a specific issue. And rather than just having uh, one Bible passage, we're going, to be looking at, uh, we're going to look at several and trying to help prepare ourselves for that inevitability of our own death. Death isn't something that we talk much about either uh, in society generally or even as Christians within the church, and there are all sorts of reasons for it. Um, it's unfashionable or even unmentionable. The Victorians didn't talk much about sex, but today we don't really talk about death. Okay, sure, we have public debate about things like um, assisted suicide and euthanasia, but that seems to be more in the context of wanting to be in control and even determine our own death. That's very different to having normal conversations with the people we meet daily, with our friends, with our family, with our neighbours and colleagues about preparing for our own deaths. <clears throat> it's unfamiliar, isn't it? Because dying has become medicalized. Many people die in hospital. How many of us have actually been with someone as they've died? How many of us have even seen a dead body? Yeah, we see plenty of gory things and deaths uh, on film and TV, but that's not the same as witnessing the death of someone or the dead body of someone that we know. In previous generations and in other cultures, death and dying were <clears throat> part of everyday life. Many people died young. Many families had children who died in childhood. It's also unwelcome because we live in a materialistic culture and we want to be able to enjoy things and to do things, and it doesn't seem right that we should miss out. And as Christians, if we're Christians, we could even start thinking like that as well. And we can think that it isn't good that anyone should leave this world before he or she has experienced all that it has to offer. And then it's unacceptable. Well, that's probably a bit too mild a word to use, isn't it? It's an outrage. It's awful. For the person dying, it can be in all sorts of ways a terrible experience. <clears throat> yeah, it is awful. Death takes people away from us. They're gone. It can be um, very cruel. I'm just going to quote a little, little reading introduction from a very helpful little book, What Happens When People Die. The author says, It was a Saturday morning when we got the phone call from my mother. It was hard to make out everything she said, given that she was so distressed, but it was something to do with my father having collapsed. He was only 62 and had no health problems we were aware of, so the news that he was unwell came very much out of the blue. Ten minutes later, the phone rang again. This time, it was a good family friend who was there with Mum. She was sorry to have to tell me that my father was dead. 
One minute he'd been working away at his desk in his study at home, he was a church minister, and the next he was lying on the floor dead. Apparently he would have known very little about it, undiagnosed heart problem. It would have been as sudden as flicking a switch and turning off a light. That was 12 years ago. My mother still finds Saturdays hard and has never really got used to living on her own. Her retirement, his retirement was only a few years away and they had started making plans and were looking forward to having more time together and with the family. I look at our four kids growing up and can't help but feel a sadness that they never knew their grandfather. He was so great with kids and they would have loved him so much. And personally, I just miss him very much. So death is awful. It takes people away from us. It's cruel. And then in church, maybe we don't think about enough about heaven. Christian hope has in the past been criticised as pie in the sky when you die, leading to an attitude that doesn't challenge injustices in this world. And it's a criticism that at times is well-founded. But rather than hold together this future hope and a wish to work for the good of our neighbour, so holding those two things in tension together, it's all too easy to lose the longing for heaven. I recall a few years ago we were visiting a church in another town <clears throat> and someone told me that she'd moved um, church, she'd moved to that church from another well-known church where the minister there had talked about not being at all excited by all this heaven stuff. It's a danger that we can all fall into. We may just be so busy with life here that we've no sense of the eternal perspective. <clears throat> So that's just some of the reasons, and I guess there are many more, why we generally don't talk about death. But if we look at the Bible, we'll see that there is some good advice on how we should proceed. So let's look at Psalm 90 on page 599. Hopefully you've still got it open. <clears throat> it's a great psalm. It reminds us of our mortality. <clears throat> we can look at it briefly in three sections. The first section, verses 1 to 6, contrast the eternal God and frail, mortal human beings. Look at verses 1 and 2. Lord, you have been our dwelling place throughout all generations. Before the mountains were born, or you brought forth the earth and the world, from everlasting to everlasting, you are God. <clears throat> God is eternal. God is everlasting. He's our refuge. Isaac Watts, the hymn writer, he wrote the well-known hymn, O God, our help, in ages past, and that's based on these, six, these first six verses. It's one of those hymns that's often sung at, at Remembrance Day events. <clears throat> so, looking, thinking of the first few verses, it says, O God, our help in ages past, our hope for years to come, our shelter from the stormy blast, and our eternal home. Before the hills in order stood, or earth received her frame, from everlasting, thou art God, to endless years the same. But then in Psalm 90, verses 3 to 6, remind us of our human frailty. <clears throat> our lives are brief, and we're reminded of Genesis 3, verse 19, when God said to Adam, for you are to dust, and to dust you shall return. Verse 4 may be something like this, that even some of those mentioned in the early genealogies in Genesis, lived for hundreds of years, some near to a thousand years. That's still nothing in the context of God's eternity. 
And so again, Isaac Watts' hymn, verse 5 of his hymn, goes like this. Time, like an ever-rolling stream, bears all its sons away. They fly forgotten as a dream dies at the opening day. But if we look on to the next section of the psalm, verses 7 to 11, if you just glance at those verses, you'll see that we're given the reason for our mortality. From Adam onwards, human humanity has been in rebellion against God and deserving of his wrath. Lifespan may have been much longer before Noah's flood, but it quickly came down to the range that's more normal, 70 and 80. Look at verse 10. The length of our days is 70 years, or 80, if we have the strength. And then the final section is a series of requests or prayers. We're just going to look at the first one in verse 12. So teach us. Teach us to number our days that we may get a heart of wisdom. It's not actually about number, it's not about mathematics, about arithmetic, it's not about counting how many days I lived or how many days I've got left. It's about, it's rather a prayer that we think about the implication of our mortality. Why is it that we only live for 70 or 80 years? We don't even, or even if we think back to the people at the start of the Bible. Why did they only live for, even then, only hundreds of years? Why is that? It's asking, and it's asking God to help us to take our mortality seriously, to face up to the facts, to be wise in how we live in the light of our mortality. Let's turn now to page 672, to Ecclesiastes chapter 7. So pitch 672. And I'm just going to read um, the first six verses. So this this start of Ecclesiastes is like a selection of Proverbs. A good name is better than fine perfume. You might say, well, that's okay. But then listen to this. And the day of death, better than the day of birth. It's better to go to a house of mourning than to go to a house of feasting, for day... For death is the destiny of every man. The living should take this to heart. Sorrow is better than laughter because it's a sad face, because a sad face is good for the heart. The heart of the wise is in the house of the morning, but the heart of fools is in the house of pleasure. It's better to heed a wise man's rebuke than to listen to the song of fools. Like the crackling of thorns under the pot, so is the laughter of fools. This too is meaningless. So, in what way is the day of death better than the day of birth? It's a bit weird, isn't it? There's not necessarily anything wrong with going to a house of feasting. It's great to go to a party, isn't it? Great to go to a wedding. But we're likely to learn more about our mortality by going to a house of mourning. It's there or at a funeral that we're reminded that Death is the destiny of every man, verse 2. It's too easy to ignore um, the prospect of death sometime in the future when everything's going on okay. But the death of someone we know reminds us that we'll all face death. So the instruction in verse 2, instruction to take it to heart, is for the, that's the instruction, for the living to take it to heart. 
And just as in Psalm 90, we're encouraged to face the facts and to act on them. We might also say that the day of death is better than the day of birth because death can lead through to an even better life that is to come. Though the writer of Ecclesiastes doesn't seem to have that hope. We're going to look later in the New Testament and see that death does indeed for the Christian lead to eternal life. But for the moment, let's just stick with Ecclesiastes. Let's just do as Ecclesiastes, as well as Psalm 90 advisors, and face up to the facts. <coughs> so if we're going to take note and act on this biblical advice, it seems sensible that we think about our death and prepare for it, even if it may turn out to be a long way away. But we never know. So there are some practical things that we should do. First of all, it's worth making a will. Many people fail to do that, and it can cause all sorts of problems. It's much better to be clear who will inherit anything we leave behind. And of course, we leave everything behind. <clears throat> and if you have dependent children, then it's really important to decide what should happen to them. If, as parents, you're killed in, say, an accident, talking through with friends or family uh, who might be guardians isn't an easy thing. It's one thing to agree to be guardians if parents are killed, but it's quite another thing if you suddenly um, find that your family has grown from, say, two or three children to five or six. But without instructions and a will, it may be social services or other authorities who decide where the children are placed. <coughs> And then prepare yourself for the possibility that you may become unable to look after yourself or make decisions for yourself. You can make a lasting power of attorney. <clears throat> There's one for property and finance, allowing an attorney to manage your affairs and another for health and welfare. That one, combined with a note of wishes, is probably much better than an advanced directive to refuse treatment, something that used to be called the living will. <clears throat> if, you were, if you heard the talk that Leanne... Uh, Lynch and I gave in the Human Journey series last year. You may remember that we talked about that then, and we re recommended this little book, Facing Serious Illness, Guidance for Christians Toward the End of Life. It explains about the health and welfare power of attorney. <coughs> Sensible also to think about insurance. Needs, of course, vary. It depends, of course, on what stage of life, what stage of life you're at. Um, but for a young family, for example, having to cope with the death of one of the parents can have very significant financial implications. It's also good if we can have our affairs in order, <coughs> our papers and wishes easily accessible. And it's really important that we try to be at peace as far as we're able with those around us, with friends and family. And that if we die we die with a good conscience. People often say, maybe you do, <clears throat> they were lucky, they died suddenly and quickly. But too often that isn't the case, and it isn't lucky to die suddenly and quickly necessarily at all. Some of the Puritans in the 17th century wrote about death and preparation for it. <clears throat> Richard Baxter wrote a series of directions for a peaceful death. And in one of his directions, he calls sickness a great mercy, helping us to get ready to die. He wrote, I know to those that have walked very close with God and are always ready, 
a sudden death may be a mercy, as we have lately known several holy ministers and others that have died either after a sacrament or in the evening of the Lord's day or in the midst of some holy exercise with so little pain that none about them perceived when they died. But ordinarily, it is a mercy to have the flesh brought down and weakened by painful sickness to help conquer our natural unwillingness to die. Unless we're completely ready to die, a sudden death isn't lucky or merciful. <clears throat> and as in the example I gave earlier, that, that example I read about, it can be extra difficult for those who remain. In my work as a GP and at a hospice, I many times saw people sorting out issues, restoring relationships before they died. Sadly, of course, the opposite is also too often true, that despite having some warning that life is nearing its end, things remain unresolved. One of the reasons why we often think that a sudden death is good for the person who's died is that we say that they didn't suffer. But with good palliative care, it's possible to take much of the pain and anguish away. Dame Cicely Saunders was uh, the pioneer of the hospice movement and the whole speciality of um, palliative care. And one of her most profound insights was the concept of total pain. She recognized in some of her patients dying of cancer that there were different aspects to pain. So there was the physical pain. So for example, the awful pain in cancer of cancer cells invading the bone. But then there was also mental or psychological pain, <clears throat> anxiety about what was happening, or even just fear of the physical pain, general despair. And then there's relational pain, concerns about the effect that the cancer in that case, but whatever the disease may be, has on a spouse or child, or the realization that broken relationships might never be restored. And then there's also spiritual pain, maybe from feelings of unacknowledged guilt, from past events. And Cicely Saunders realized that each form of pain had to be addressed, and she discovered that if anxiety, uh, loneliness, and spiritual pain were recognized and tackled, then very often the physical pain was much easier to control than alleviate. <clears throat> Many of the tragic high-profile cases of apparently uncontrollable, in inverted commas, pain that are used by campaigners to promote assisted suicide seem to be those where psychological, relational, and spiritual factors dominated. Another very, I'm being like John Ellison, I think, showing books today. <laughs> Another very good uh, book on the whole issue, another uh, a very recent book, this is a very recent book on the whole issue of euthanasia, assisted suicide and end of life care is this one, Right to Die by John Wyatt. I think there's one, or there was one copy on the book, bookstall that's really worth reading if you want to. Um, <clears throat> but in contrast, in contrast to that, <clears throat> this book, um, uh, that new book, this book, The Christian Medical Fellowship, published this little book 35 years ago. So it's written by a man called James Casson, who, who was a GP who at 37, age 37, died um, of cancer. And it's entitled, Dying the Greatest Adventure of My Life. <clears throat> and he, he was a Christian, and he writes uh, honestly about his struggles. And, and he also helpfully lists some everyday practical problems. I'm just going to read a couple of paragraphs. I thought I was alone in having to face one particular problem until I overheard a conversation 
while I was waiting in a queue for radiotherapy. One patient turned to another and said, you know, I haven't been out of the house since Christmas. Why not? Oh, I never know what to say to people when they keep asking me how I'm getting on. She went on to say that when she was in hospital, she had 90 get well cards. <clears throat> and then James Casson goes on to list um, a variety of different uh, um, problems, which I won't go into in great detail, but he talks about people asking you, how are you? And how that's really difficult to keep saying, and it's perhaps better to say, good morning, nice to see you out. He talks about telephone calls, but people repeatedly calling to ask how you are can be really difficult in an age, I guess, before emails. He talks about people writing letters, and he said it would be very helpful if people wrote a brief comment like, brief comment like, please don't bother to reply to this letter. It's good to get letters, but not feel you have to reply. There's a whole section about visitors, about how visitors sometimes come when you're tired and just come with a hale and hearty approach and can be quite difficult. He also talks about, as a younger person, talks about personal adjustments by which he's talking about the concerns of the physical aspects of marriage and how that becomes more difficult as illness progresses. And that can be really difficult in a, in a marriage towards the end of life. <coughs> and then there's a little section where he's talking about how do you tell younger members of the family when someone's dying? <coughs> and then he has a whole list of special difficulties for the Christian in facing terminal illness. And I'm just going to read one of the things in his list. And one is to say that well-meaning Christian friends will be even more concerned to share their latest good book, their cassette tape, as it was then, prayer guidelines, and so on. The problem is compounded because the lender will be confident that his or her book is just the one for your particular need. Certainly, I've appreciated the many books I've been lent, but again, moderation is the key. If you wish to share something, I've found, I valued the reading of a psalm together as much as anything else. And I think I just want to add one other thing, just the problem of unfulfilled hope of healing. I think of some friends of ours where someone was clearly dying of terminal cancer, and yet their Christian friends and the person all were convinced this person was going to be healed. And when that didn't happen and this person died, everyone was much more distraught than I think they should have been. But in this book, James Casson goes on, in this thing he wrote in his last weeks, goes on to write about the Christian hope, goes on to say that he has hope, and that's uh, what we're going to turn to now also. If we just think back to Ecclesiastes 7, that question, that sentence, the day of uh, death is better than the day of birth, well, we've thought how that's true when it makes us face up to the facts and encourage us to prepare for our death, but it's also better for the Christian in the sense that there's a better life to come. So would you turn to the New Testament to page 1189 to 1 Thessalonians chapter 4, page 1189. <clears throat> so Thessalonians chapter 4, and I'm going to read verses 13 to 18. Brothers, we do not want you to be ignorant about those who fall asleep or to grieve like the rest of men who have no hope, we believe that Jesus died and rose again, and so we believe that God will bring with Jesus those who have fallen asleep in him. 
According to the Lord's own word, we tell you that we who are still alive, who are still left, who are left till the coming of the Lord, will certainly not precede those who have fallen asleep. For the Lord himself will come down from heaven with a loud command, with the voice of the archangel and with the trumpet call of God, and the dead in Christ will rise first. After that, we who are still alive and are left will be caught up together with them in the clouds to meet the Lord in the air. And so we will be with the Lord forever. Therefore, encourage each other with these words. Thessalonian Christians were worried because they were expecting Jesus to return, but some of them had died. And what was going to happen to them? And Paul, writing uh, this letter to them, says he doesn't want them to be ignorant or uninformed. And he doesn't want them to grieve like others do who have no hope. So there are two things, he says, to avoid. Don't uh, be ignorant or uninformed, and don't grieve as others do who have no hope. So for, let's first of all just quickly think about this, don't be ignorant or uninformed, because as we read the Bible, we're informed. We learn what really happens after death. We don't know every detail, of course, but we can know enough of the big picture to give hope and comfort. Of course, for many people, there's only a vague hope for something after death. When they don't have to face up to death or bereavement, many people will say uh, that at death everything finishes. They'll say, that's it. But many of those same people, when they're faced with the loss of a loved one, will talk about them having passed on and being in a better place. Just go to a cemetery and read some of the sentimental things on gravestones. It's all vague, and they have nothing on which to base such comments, but it does suggest that the writer of Ecclesiastes had noted correctly when he said back in chapter 3, verse 11, God has put eternity into man's heart. Well, how much better it would be to be properly informed. And the message is, of course, based on real facts. Jesus died and rose again. The evidence is clear. If you're unsure, then do some serious investigation. Jesus, who died that awful death on the cross, was resurrected on Easter Day. He had a transformed body, though he was still recognizable. And he said he was going to return. So all that he predicted before he died happened. So we can be confident that his prediction of his return will also happen. And from these verses, we learn that uh, when he returns, through Jesus, God will bring with him those who've fallen asleep. When we die, our bodies are likened to being asleep. And that's why a graveyard is called a cemetery. The cemetery translated meaning a sleeping place. When the Lord comes, the dead in Christ will rise first. The dead Christian believers will not miss out. They'll go ahead of those who are alive, who will also be caught up, and together they'll be with the Lord. So you could sort of summarize this little passage like this. There's the return of the Lord Jesus. There's the resurrection of the believers who've died. There's the rapture, the snatching up of believers still alive. And then there's the reunion, yes, with fellow believers, but above all, most importantly, it's a reunion of being with the Lord. But then, secondly, don't grieve as others do who have no hope. It's important to see that the verse doesn't say don't grieve. Grief is normal, but there's a huge difference between, often between funerals where there's Christian hope and those where there's no Christian assurance. 
For Christian believers, there'll be tears, but there needn't be despair. And it's because we're not ignorant, but instead know the facts, if we're Christians, that we can avoid this hopeless despair. Grieving, however, must happen, and often, often will go through various stages, so there'll be shock and numbness. Yet in those first few days, there are many practical things to do. Collecting a notification of death from the hospital or GP, arranging an appointment with the registrar to get the death certificate. Early on, there's the need to contact a funeral director, particularly if the death occurred at home, that needs to be done fairly soon. But it's also important to contact church people at church, and talking to the clergy before meeting an undertaker is often best. It's good, if possible, to be clear on what you as a family want. And I certainly found that, each, uh, that when my mother died and then a year later my father, that in each time the folk at Spencer and Peyton were very accommodating to our wishes. In the next stage of bereavement, there may be irrational fears and emotions. There may be feelings of guilt and anxiety, and also anger and bitterness. And then later there may be tears and painful memories, but then gradual acceptance. But how different people um, react varies and different situations may influence how the grieving process goes. If I reflect on the death of um, my parents, I think that for me, because they gradually became over several years more infirm and no longer the people that they'd been, that while sad, I was happy, glad that they'd gone to be with the Lord. It was actually more difficult observing my father's grief when he realised what and who he had lost. I just want to say a little bit more about this biblical terminology of being asleep. What happens when we die as Christians? The resurrection that we've been reading about has yet to happen. Jesus assured the dying thief on the cross next to him that today you will be with me in paradise. And in 2 Corinthians chapter 5, Paul writes, we're always of good courage. We know that while we are at home in the body, we're away from the Lord. For we walk by faith, not by sight. Yes, we are of good courage, and we would rather be away from the body and at home with the Lord. Dying uh, for the Christian is going home. The body sleeps, awaiting the final resurrection. When we die, we'll be away from this body and at home with the Lord. Going home isn't so much about the place as about the person. It's going home to the Lord. Again, just talking about my parents, it was for me very striking when my mother died. <clears throat> I've, of course, seen many, many corpses. But with my mother, I had a realisation that I've never quite experienced before, having been with her a few hours before she died and then returning to my parents' room where she died with my father in the adjacent bed. I just had this overwhelming sense that this was now just the body, just a shell, that my mother had gone to be with the Lord. One final thing to say about grieving. What if I'm a Christian coming to terms with the death of a non-Christian loved one? Is there then no hope? The Bible is certainly clear about the fate of the unbeliever and about the fact that after death there is no second chance. But the truth is that in the end we just don't know for sure where someone stood with God. Even someone who rejected God all their life may have turned to him in their last moments, 
thief on the cross, he left it about as late as you possibly could before turning to the Lord. So we should pray for our loved ones when they're alive and be a gospel witness to them. And when they've died, we have to leave them in the Lord's hands and give thanks for them. section we've looked at in uh, 1 Thessalonians 4 ends with this at verse 18. Therefore, encourage one another with these words. Knowing about what will happen to Christian, a Christian believer is meant to be a comfort to us in bereavement. Death is not the end. We go to be with the Lord, with the Lord Jesus forever. But if you're not a believer, then there is no comfort. Choosing to ignore God in this life, which is really only a prequel to the real thing, will lead to separation from God in the life to come. And Jesus had some terrifying things to say about the fate of those who reject him. But of course, it doesn't need to be like that. It's possible to move from feeling it's all hopeless to being full of hope. We can move from our stubborn independence and place our eternal destiny in the hands of Jesus Christ. And when we do that, we can join the psalmist David in the words based on the 23rd Psalm that we're about to sing. In death's dark veil, I fear no ill. With thee, dear Lord, beside me, thy rod and staff, my comfort still, thy cross before to guide me. And so, through all the length of days, thy goodness faileth never, good shepherd, May I sing thy praise within thy house forever. Just before we sing that song, let's have a prayer. And I'm just going to use a prayer that's often used at funerals. Grant us, Lord, the wisdom and the grace to use aright the time that is left to us here on earth. Lead us to repent of our sins, the evil we have done and the good we have not done, and strengthen us to follow the steps of your Son in the way that leads to the fullness of eternal life through Jesus Christ our Lord. Amen. Well, when the musicians are ready, we're going to sing that song.